Hello and welcome. I'm Trumpet Man, and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or a trophy master. So this week on the podcast, we're doing a quick 2022 retrospective and a little story behind this episode. Well, we've been having, you know, the holidays. Everyone's been enjoying that. And uh, right now it's December 31st, uh, 2022, and I want to get this episode out to you all. So um, what's happening is kind of going to be a little bit more informal today. And I just wanted to do a rundown of the podcast from 2022, uh, everything going on on the website, but then also just to look at the sets that came out in 2022. So you're essentially going to be getting an unedited version of this particular podcast, as opposed to, uh, you know, the regular podcast, which, of course, um, tend to be a lot more edited. So I'm going to be looking, uh, you know, at monologuing a bit here. And uh, so we're going to just jump right into things. So uh, before we get to that retrospective, a quick word on the Patreon. Everything from 40 Card College is, of course, always free. Um, But I did want to mention one resource that you might not realize is available um, at patreon.com slash 40 Card College, which actually one of the tiers offers draft log reviews. So what is a draft log review? Well, Um, essentially you send me your 17 lands data, uh, for a draft, maybe a couple games that you thought, Hmm, don't know if I played those perfectly or not. And I look at those couple games and then also the draft itself. And then I give feedback on it. So it's kind of like a mini coaching session, but more in like text-based form. Um, so if that's something you're interested in, you can check out that among all the other perks over at, uh, patreon.com slash 40 card college. Um, Speaking of the Patreon, it's basically how we keep the lights on here at 40 Card College. Um, Everything is listener-supported, and I really appreciate uh, all the patrons. I really appreciate all the patrons that are already supporting the project. So appreciate that, and let's get into things. And before we get on to our main topic, a quick little question of the week here. So... That's another uh, benefit of the Patreon. Also, anyone at any tier can post questions a week, and we can answer them directly on the podcast. Um, But, of course, it's holidays right now. Everyone is off and busy enjoying. So I came up with my own question this week I thought you all might be interested in. So what is one of my favorite holiday traditions? So it is New Year's Eve today, and one of my favorite things to do uh, is get together with friends, family, uh, and we bring in the new year playing board games, actually. So in a couple hours here, actually, going to be going doing that, getting together with some folks and playing board games. We play for a few hours, you know, leading up to midnight. And then that's part of our tradition to ring in the new year. It's always a lot of fun. So mixing like traditions with things um, that a bunch of people uh, really enjoy is a really fun way to celebrate. And so that's something personally um, that's become a tradition that uh, really enjoyed that. And it, it's kind of interesting um, because growing up, this was actually a tradition as, uh, you know, a kid in my family, we would get together with um, some of our best friends uh, and their family. And we kind of had that tradition growing up. We would be playing these board games and they were, you know, family games, that kind of stuff. And then now, as an adult, it actually like kind of morphed into its own thing over the last, uh, I'd say, few years. Um, we get together with a group of friends that want to play board games, and 
we play board games. And so now we're, you know, I just learned the rules to a board game called Concept. And so that's going to be hopefully like a, a fun one, like a group activity, and we can work together and it'll be a lot of fun with that too. So um, hopefully you all have had some amazing holidays and enjoy some holiday traditions. Um, and if you ever want to uh, just chat, you know, uh, in terms of MTG, there's also the like other random chat uh, in the Discord. You can throw it down. Uh, maybe one of your favorite holiday traditions there too. Let me know. Um, so jumping on into our main topic this week. So I wanted to just, again, make this episode to kind of talk about the best of sort of everything in terms of the whole project, um, but then also the sets and to kind of go through that. Um, and then also I'll call the other part the rest, which, you know, we, we say the best, the worst, whatever people, I think uh, limited resources does props and slops, uh, that kind of thing. Um, shout out to uh, Draft Chaff uh, podcast. If you're not listening to them, they, they put on a pretty good show. Um, they have um, Tybalt and Teferi, which is like the good and the bad, right? So anyways, the best and the rest here for 40 Card College. So the best. I have to say um, proud of the content that I've been able to put out uh, for the last three months. Basically, October 9th, I was looking, was the first podcast. So I've been going strong for three months here and kind of right on pace, weekly schedule pretty much with this being the 12th episode. Um, I want to keep up that consistency and also expand upon it um, because it's more than just uh, the podcast, right? We also have those articles. We have, you know, weekly streams. I'm dialing it back a little bit in terms of the, the New Year's with videos particularly uh, on the YouTube. Um, one thing is that uh, people seem to really like those really high stakes limited events. So I'm going to keep doing that. But video production is incredibly time intensive. Um, and that's taking into account even like when I edit the podcast, then, you know, that adds time to it as well. Um, obviously, today being a little bit different. Uh, but uh, so that's kind of the plan moving forward is to continue. I'm going to be picking back up those articles in the new year keeping that going strong with 40 card college and then the podcast is going to be continuing the same thing and then i want to kind of add in like more scheduled like weekday streams it'd be something that i think would be fun to bring into the rotation um because i'm going to be playing magic anyway so i really enjoy the streams really enjoy the community there um so looking forward probably going to be tuesdays and thursdays but i'll let you know more about that uh as time goes on uh, also, another thing with the best is, of course, here, the community. Um, everything behind the project, everyone has been incredibly supportive of. seems like people are invested and want, you know, this community, this project to continue. Anytime I ask for, you know, feedback or someone has an idea on how to make, you know, the content better here or the production better or anything like that, um, you know, you're not afraid to let me know. And I see those comments. I see it from, you know, a genuine place of caring. And so I really appreciate that when people, you know, take their time out of their day to write me a comment, let me know, Hey, you know, I like this. I like that. Here's one area I think, you know, could be improved or even just those suggestions. I always take those into account because I want this to be, you know, the very best place to get better at limited, um, on the web and for you guys to be able to 
take advantage of that. So, you know, going to continue to do that into the new year. And I love talking with everyone in the Discord. I love seeing those trophy pictures. I love talking about general magic theory um, and, you know, format specific theory. So it really has been the best time. And I appreciate, you know, everything that everyone has done in this community to help build it. So I know a little saccharine here, but that really honestly is how I feel. Um, and it wouldn't be, basically, it would not be worth doing what I'm doing without the community because the whole point was to provide my insights in a way that I want to do, uh, where it's, you know, just, um, coming from me and it's not, you know, part of some larger content machine trying to sell you magic cards. Um, it's really just about how to get better at limited and everyone has embraced that. And I really have to just be appreciative and thankful for each and every one of you that has contributed even in some way, even if you're just, you know, showing up to, you know, lurk in the comments and, and seeing what other people are saying. So um, again, thank you to everyone who has been with me so far. Um, it's going to be an exciting 2023. So uh, that is, you know, everything about the project. But of course, there was a lot of magic sets as well this year. Um, five of them to be exact. So what I was going to do just going to go through each one, and it's not going to be as in-depth as an into-format retrospective uh, like we had with Dominar United, um, and I plan to do moving forward, too, with Brothers War as that format comes to a close in 2023. But since, uh, specifically, we started in October, I haven't gotten to talk about some of the earlier sets from 2022 as much, and so I thought that would be a fun thing to do right now. So if we look back at... Neon Dynasty. Something I really thought was awesome about that set was the sagas. Um, I think it was a unique way to change the design on sagas. I think the creatures themselves, as they flip into, was a pretty cool idea. Part of the um, genius behind like having all those sagas flip into creatures also was a little bit of their detriment because I think you know, from a design standpoint, everything having to turn into a creature really kind of was like, okay, well, that's all the sagas can do right here, which could be a little bit of a problem, but overall, I think, um, was a massive success and really, really cool. Um, to go along with that, I think Kamigawa, the whole theming was with this, um, you know, retro future environment really, really worked, was really, really awesome. And so, I really enjoyed the theme of Neon Dynasty. Um, you could also like perfectly kind of map it onto the colors themselves, right? Where it was like you had those blue ninjas. There was like that sort of cyberpunk element, everything like that. And then green was more like this like harmonious nature and everything in between. Um, and so it was kind of cool. Like you could just really see the world through its cards. And it's something that I didn't maybe see as much in some other sets where, you know, we're not like I'm not like a super big Vorthos. I'm not someone who I'm like, ah, I need to really feel the cards. But I mean, it does help when you when you deliver, you know, flavor in a way that makes sense. Um, when you deliver it in a way that resonates with the player, then you're just going to have an overall better experience, I think. Um, and so I could see that like really, really crafted and that story, that environment, was very, very clear from the get-go with Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. So I thought that was, like, one super awesome element of the format 
Um, just like looking at the cards was just a joy itself. In addition, um, I think there was really, really cool and different two-color decks. Like when you drafted a two-color deck, you sort of felt where you were on that theming scale where if you drafted like um, blue-black ninjas and everything was all super cyberpunky, like we're talking about, with the ninjas and their like their their blades and like um, it was sort of like connected to the computers and the neon lights and the bright lights and everything versus drafting like green white enchantments and it was much more like about that connection to nature and the past like you just felt that in the decks themselves and then on top of that like you also had um the mix and matches right where like you had the the white black uh enchantment and artifacts you're being pulled in different directions but you had to kind of balance everything um and so the story through the theming also kind of played into those two colored pairs as well and i think overall um the two color pairs in neon dynasty were very effective and almost all of them were draftable i mean you had some misses like the white blue vehicle deck wasn't very good so you know that kind of missed even though it was a cool idea like it was an interesting way to take that uh, in a different direction the red white samurai deck same thing like it seemed like a pretty cool idea a different way of like samurais must attack alone and sort of the honor behind that trying to translate that into a mechanic didn't really work um but other than that, I would say, like, a bunch of the two-color decks were fun to play. Even the, like, green-black, good stuff, you know, no real theming soup uh, <laughs> in Neon Dynasty, it kind of still just worked out. So I thought, like, they were all fun to play, and I enjoyed that. Um, now, in terms of what maybe wasn't quite as good, there was some expansion over time with the archetypes. I would say, like, you could do different things. But within the color pairs, they were a little bit, like, explicitly defined where, um, you know, when you drafted the white-black deck, you were looking to pair enchantments and artifacts to get payoffs. And basically, the signpost uncommons were exactly what you were doing. And even though they were doing unique things over time, eventually, maybe that got to be a little bit stale. In addition to the sagas, like, they were extremely successful but almost successful to a fault, right? Where it basically got to be where you opened up a pack of Neon Dynasty and you looked to the pack and, well, is there a Saka you can take? Because if you can, you probably should. And so that, as much as I loved the Sagas, I thought overall um, they were a little bit too good. Um, and so just led to some stale draft patterns themselves. But I will say, uh, late into the format, uh, Mono Red kind of became a thing. And that was like a new deck that was kind of flying under the radar because red looked really bad at first. But if you just got all the red cards, it played really well with itself and was actually a really good archetype on its own, being like as red as possible. Um, so I thought, you know, there was some experimentation, some expansion in the format. Overall, a, a pretty fun format. Um, the gameplay was good. I don't think it was like the best, um, but I really did enjoy uh, Neon Dynasty. So, you know, I, I wasn't ranking the formats when I went into this, but like I said, kind of informally here without editing on the fly, if I'm looking at the five formats from this year, I think I would have to rank uh, Neon Dynasty probably number three if I'm just doing this on the fly. 
And so, hmm. Yeah, I'd probably have to rank it number three. And all right, I created a ranking of the five on the fly here. So look forward to those as well. So going to our next format, um, Streets of New Capenna. So Streets of New Capenna, if we're thinking about what was good about this world, um, again, really cool theming, right? You had um, this like Art Nouveau kind of mob boss city, bright light style. Um, and the mob boss world, like it came alive on the cards. Really cool theming. Um, and unfortunately, it was not reflected in the gameplay as much. Where like you, you just felt that in Neon Dynasty, but other than the fact that like each mob boss was like a three color deck, right? You were incentivized to build three colors supposedly in Streets of New Capenna. Um, you didn't really feel that when you're looking at the cards. So I couldn't tell you like what was cabaretty just by looking at it, like the picture versus like Maestro's. I know that like the um, Jund uh, mob boss, again, I'm like, what was even that one even called? Oh, Riveteers, right? So even that, like it, it's not, it doesn't have that staying power in my mind. Um, it was, you know, fight rigging and there was like underground boxing or something. I'm not sure exactly what was going on there. So some of the themes were a little bit, you know, less clear than others. Um, but I thought like the world itself and like these sky rises was super cool because we haven't seen something like that um, since, you know, Ravnica. But Ravnica, it was much more about, like, living in the, the streets and the guilds were there and, like, they were interacting, but they had the different flavors and it's, like, very clear what each guild is about. Like, when you think Celestia, you think of, like, the Temple Garden. You think about, like, sort of this, the, the hive mind and the nature coming into the city. When you think about Demir, you think about sort of the backstreet alleys and the rogues and they're underneath and you don't know exactly what's going on there, but it's, you know, it's sneaky, it's sinister. Yeah. When I think about Riveteers again, I came up with boxing ring. <laughs> so, um, the flavor while really cool was more generally cool than specifically cool. So, I mean, it would be a, a world I would be happy to return to. I think people's reception of it might make it a hard place to return to. And also the design space, maybe not quite as, big maybe with this like wedge set world as something else like why would you necessarily return here when you could go back to like Tarkir for example because I think people have some much more reverence for Tarkir now there might be story reasons I, I'm not like like I said a lore expert so stuff happened I think on Tarkir and it got you know changed into like the two color world with the dragons or something back then I don't know exactly um, so maybe that's not possible but I'm sure there's always a way so if we wanted to you know we, we could maybe someday. Okay, another thing I really liked about Streets of New Capenna that the three-color decks were fun. Now, everyone says Streets of New Capenna was a two-color format, and so you never drafted three colors. Um, but that actually, like, didn't bear out to be true. Um, you know, there was a lot of three-color decks, and they weren't as good as the two-color decks, but they were still competitive. I think, in fact, like, one way as the format developed one way to get an edge in the format was drafting maestros, these like types of control decks um, with the glamorous outlaw, that six mana four five that when it comes into play, uh, it deals your opponent two damage and you scry two. Um, that was like kind of a key control finisher at common as a way to kind of trade one for one um, with the uh, brokers decks 
and be able to go toe to toe with them and fight the format from a different angle. And when I drafted those decks, basically every time I was always three colors. Now, sometimes the three colors was more of a splash than full three colors. Like you might be like blue, black, splash, red or red, black, splash. Well, red, black, splash, blue, maybe not as much. The really streamlined aggressive decks, you really just want to play two colors. Like if you were green, white, you just want to be green, white. If you were red, black, you just want to be red, black. But oftentimes you could also kind of splash a third color, um, pick up some fixing and it was fine. Now, if you could get a streamlined two-color deck that was really aggressive in Streets of New Capenna, it was the thing to do. It was the problem that, like, those decks just having that much rate within two colors, within single-colored cards, it was kind of the problem with the format. And um, that's kind of what everyone agreed upon in the community. So it did miss there. But there was also a ton of fun build-arounds. Like, yeah, I didn't draft Cabaretti that much, um, the Naya colors. Because, you know, they were agreed upon to be probably the worst. Um, maybe Riveteers was worse. I'm not sure. But there was a lot of really cool build-arounds that I personally had a lot of fun and success with, too, when um, that archetype was open. Like, my favorite, thinking back, was Pirate Sledge Arsonist. So this was that 2 and a red 2-2, two -two, and you could pay, pay 1, tap it, and it dealt X damage to any target where X is the number of things that you sacrifice that turn. And so there was a bunch of ways to, like, sacrifice things, even from just the lands that came into play, um, the, the overlooks, I think they were called. But anyways, like, the ones that could go evolving wilds for within your um, guild, essentially, um, and it gained you a life. So there was the lands that did that, um, but also there was, like, different combo pieces to sacrifice a bunch of stuff. And so Pirates Ledge Arsonist was awesome. There's also a way to give it death touch in the format. So you could like play a couple creatures, give the Parsledge Arsonist death touch um, off of the uh, card that gave it death touch. It was a creature that if you play two creatures, it gave it death touch for the turn. So you just had to sacrifice one thing, give it death touch. You could shoot anything down. And that was just like one card that was a build around. And there was actually a few others as well. So while, you know, the format was dominated by two color decks, dominated by inspiring overseer which was the you know completely absurd two white two one flying gain of life when it came into play a draw card just completely absurd um there was a lot of fun to be had besides that so i think the format was written off um and people say i think it was you know worse than it actually was i think overall in 2022 we had you know five pretty incredible sets overall like there were none that just were horrible to draft, in my opinion. Um, and so it, it was a good year for that. And then, um, let's see. The only thing is that with Inspiring Overseer, with the two drops being as good as they were in Streets of New Capenna, that was paired with some of the best combat tricks we've ever seen. So it really made it basically impossible to block. And so the best thing you could do oftentimes was race. But if your opponent was trying to just attack you, and was trying to win that by, you know, playing some some combat tricks, trying to keep their creatures alive, and you actually had the removal, and you had ways to break up the combat, and you could time it out, or you could race, then there was ways to go around sort of the most busted decks. So that's the one thing I'll say. Even though, again, I think, you know, Inspiring Overseer, obvious mistake. I don't know what was going on with that. <laughs> and um, there was, you know... Even just, it wasn't even one of the good combat tricks, but for the family, 
it was a single green that could potentially give plus four plus four like you know, that the rate on some of those cards was just huge and um that combined made it pretty tricky to do much else besides attacking a block but it was but it was possible um that being said with all of those sort of critiques i will have to give streets of new capenna number five out of five i think it was the worst of the sets this year but at the end of the day i think it was still just an average format so um that's i think a pretty resounding endorsement of the year if you know an average set was the worst possible then not too bad all right we got a few more sets before we wrap things up here uh next one alchemy horizons Baldur's gate uh so this was the like repurposing of some of the uh, uh adventures in the forgotten realms set and they did uh combined that with some alchemy only cards and created some sort of like core set feel draft but with the added elements of specialize which was that weird mechanic where you could discard a, a card of a color or a basic land type and then it would flip to the backside correspondingly um there was double team which gave you extra copies of a card when you attacked with it then it lost double team but there's also just a bunch of cool mechanics like you could seek for specific things in your deck and pull them out of your deck so at the end of the day um there was a bunch of really high power stuff going on between all of those alchemy mechanics um, but in quote unquote, a regular set, like we drafted it like a regular set on arena throughout the summer. But what was cool about this set was even though the like individual cards oftentimes like weren't that strong, some of the, like the best ones, the coolest ones, it felt like sometimes you were playing a cube, uh, especially when you had like some of the higher rarities, um, cards like specifically built for that because they were trying to be going into alchemy itself. But a lot of the, um, lower rarity stuff also like gave you such value like you look at the double team creatures and that was just two creatures for one in every single creature so of course those felt completely busted um, but everyone was kind of doing busted stuff in this format and so actually it was just like a ton of fun um just doing crazy things in limited and just a regular set so i think you know it's something that i hope we get to see more of in the future like these alchemy style sets where uh, it's just a pretty high power level, even for the regular commons, um, but they're doing cool things. I think the mechanics actually in the set were pretty fun. I love specialized. Like it, it was way too much to sort of memorize and go over. But what I loved about it was it gave such power and agency over like trying to figure out like those little things like, do I hold on to a land right now because I have the specialized creature in my deck? So if I draw it, it might be an out to the situation versus like trying to play a land because if I draw a card draw spell, I might want to cast that and play another land. And so you had to really just constantly be thinking about like these little, you know, itty bitty decisions that actually had like real um, outcomes like on the game. And usually like I don't experience that as much in limited where it's like I need to be thinking about the potential of what I'm going to be drawing a lot or like what land matters more than the other because of, you know, specialize. It really mattered whether or not you played um, your forest on one turn versus a plains because it might matter two turns later which one of those you held on to. Um, and so that was kind of interesting and a different way to think about uh, limited for sure. Um, also, there's just a ton of fun build arounds at a lot of rarities. Um, 
I particularly liked the blue-white gold card OG, which was a card that when you played your second spell in a turn, you could blink any creature. Just a really cool build round on common. Um, there was a lot of blink synergies in the set. Um, but even going up uh, rarities, there was like the busted um, the busted dragon at rare. Uh, I think it was Miriam. It was a uh, teamer dragon. And it copied other dragons that came into play after it. Completely unreasonable, rare, unreasonable power level on a card. Because um, it was a 5-mana, 6-6, six, six, flying, I think, Ward 2. Um, but it gave you a reason to draft an entirely different deck. And I think some of the sets later in the year kind of didn't go into this build-around territory as much. And so when you open up a, a really powerful card that asks you to do really specific things... I think it just adds to the replayability of the format and makes it like super interesting. So I really enjoyed um, the amount of build arounds. And I think uh, Horizon Baldur's Gate was my most played uh, format all year. Um, not to mention, I mean, we talked about the theming as well. And a little backstory, I guess. Uh, so I must have been pretty young when it came out. But Baldur's Gate was like one of the first huge... Uh, RPG, you know, computer games I ever played. And it was a hard game because it was, you know, basically just Dungeons and Dragons on a computer. Not that I'm a big Dungeons and Dragons guy, but I love, you know, video games and that space. And so getting to see some of the characters um, like Minx and Boo, like, um, you know, just those environments, like they're very like lush environments. Uh, and even some like the mythic dragons with the dice rolling like it just hit in a way that was pretty cool so for me personally i love the flavor of that set and um obviously you know it builds off of the flavor from adventures in the forgotten realm from the year before but even just adding on to it i think was pretty cool um and then uh i also really appreciated the gameplay i was talking about how like those micro decisions really came up, but also another really great uh, mechanic that they brought back for uh, this set was adventure. And so, yeah, we saw adventure in Eldraine, but adventure, I think is just like a great mechanic. I was reading Mark Rosewater's article recently where he, on the storm scale, like how likely is it that we're going to see certain mechanics again? And basically uh, Mark Rosewater was saying, like adventure is one of like the most beloved mechanics. It plays really well, has a lot of design space. So I'm very excited. The fact that like, we're going to see adventure again. Um, it's really powerful, but also you have to play your cards in a certain way or else you can get blown out. Like I really, really liked um, the uh, giant uh, dragon where you can play it as a combat trick on the adventure side. Um, but if your opponent is able to kill your creature in response, suddenly you offered up a two-for-one rather than saving your own creature. Um, and then same thing like Blessed Hippogriff. So for a single white mana, you could cast it to give your creature indestructible. Normally, it was just giant blowout. Um, you would save your creature, and then you get to play a 2-3 flyer after. But if you played it at the wrong spot and your opponent could kill your creature in response to the Blessed Hippogriff, again, you actually get two-for-one rather than getting a two for one on your opponent. And so I thought like the adventure gameplay and really paying attention to what your opponent's doing and kind of being like, do they have one of the adventure creatures here versus, you know, playing against it as well. Um, again, led to some really dynamic back and forth where you really had to 
pivot a whole game plan around having an adventure creature or your opponent having one. And oftentimes it was right to really go out of your way to make sure that you could um, not get blown out or lead to a blowout. And, and sometimes even what would happen is you would try to get yourself in the spot to try to get your opponent to use their adventure creature because you knew that you were going to be able to punish them for going into your open mana and vice versa. So there's kind of like a cool cat and mouse game that happened that I didn't really feel in a lot of the other sets as well. Um, now, the one downside of this format was blue was admittedly terrible. Um, it was really, really, really bad, but it did have some pretty good rares and it had some pretty powerful blue uncommons. Like there was the Mist Dragon, which was like a 4-3 flyer that Frost Breath something for five mana. So you could get a bunch of those. Um, you could get uh, some pretty powerful, like there was Snowborn Simulacra, which basically just copied all the permanents in play and put them into your hand and then you got to put one into play. Like there was some busted mythics. So there was reasons to be blue. There just weren't that many. But there was uh, basically... Everyone was saying blue was completely undraftable, which really was not my experience. I think more often than not, you're supposed to avoid blue. But I think there's rarely a format where you're actually supposed to just never draft a color. The only one that comes to mind that I can really think of would be green from um, Battle for Zendikar, which is quite old at this point. So like, if I'm thinking back, over the past however many years like i can't think of a format where you're like yeah you just don't draft a color um because if everyone thinks that then oftentimes there's ways to leverage a color or there's spots to be able to be in a color that you actually should still be there so that was kind of my lesson my takeaway from this particular format is that in alchemy horizons baldur's gate you almost always wanted to avoid blue before the rebalancing but then uh every once in a while you did actually want to get into blue now i mentioned the rebalancing this was kind of the first time that um watsi tried to look at a set and rebalance it for limited and that was super cool because basically like all the blue cards were underpowered relative to everything else and so blue was like played a decent a, a decent amount less than everything else and yet was still losing a lot so like again you had to really pick your spot and the re the rebalancing, making a bunch of the blue cards better, so, sort of changing the stats on a cer certain other cards, meant that, you know, before the rebalance, often it was correct to just play like the Mardu aggro colors, take advantage of double team. But after the rebalance, like the balance itself, I know Sirkovitz was talking about it a few times at the time, um, our good old community data scientist. He was basically saying that after the rebalance, everything was just perfectly balanced. Like the win rates were within like a percentage point, I think across the board. Um, the colors were being drafted pretty evenly um, or at least a lot more evenly. Um, so I think it was just a huge success and looking at when a format is underpowered in that way, um, a rebalancing can be a really, really good thing. So one other thing about, if we're talking about the rebalancings, Going back to Streets of New Cavena just for a second, there was rebalancing done recently on that set, but it did not have the same effect. And I think part of that is that the rebalancing methodology that's been taken is to take cards that are underperforming and to make them better to catch up to other cards. 
The problem is, is that when you have a card as busted as Inspiring Overseer was in Streets of New Capenna, it's really hard to bring everything else up to that level. So rebalancing to try to fix a mistake at common by not making something worse, but making everything else better, it's really, really hard to do. Whereas I think if we look at um, Alchemy Horizons, they both basically made everything better in blue to catch up, but they actually did make a couple key cards worse. And so it shows that they're willing to do this. Like I talked about the Blessed Hippogriff. It was a single white mana to make something indestructible, super hard to play around, but you know, led to some interesting gameplay. That got changed to one in a white instead of a single white. And that really changed the card, made it a lot worse, but still like a really interesting, fun card to play with. Um, another one was, uh, is the one in a black 2-1 death touch that when it died, you drew a card. Got changed to one in black for a 1-1 death touch when it died, you drew a card as long as it wasn't blocking. And so that change made that card significantly worse, but still, you know, a decent card you might put in your deck. Um, Guild Sworn Prowler, the name of that one. And so I just think it shows that there's a willingness to make cards worse when the time is right. And so I don't understand how you take a card like Inspiring Overseer and don't change it after showing that willingness. I, I do agree with the philosophy of trying to make cards better because when you just make a bunch of cards worse to make things more balanced, it doesn't necessarily mean it's more fun. So if you can make the bad cards better and then have, you know, a bunch of cool things happening across the board at all times, that's going to lead to much more interesting gameplay than just making things a lot worse. Uh, but I think uh, it'll be interesting because I think rebalancing should continue to happen um, when it's needed. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, like, we don't need a rebalancing uh, when things actually are pretty well balanced. Like, Dominator United, we're about to talk about that. No rebalancing needed. It was a very well-balanced set, and so they didn't have to go to those lengths. But anyways, I think it was successful in Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate, this rebalancing, even if it wasn't in Streets of New Capenna. I love, love, loved the gameplay, the drafts, the build-arounds, everything actually about Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate. Actually going to put it at number one for me. It was my most drafted set all year. I think I had the most fun with it. And it was the set that basically people said they weren't going to play at all um, just because it was, you know, alchemy, this, alchemy, that. Um, but I have found that there's just a lot of fun to be had there. So my advice is if you're unsure of something, you know, give it a try. And then if you don't like it, that's fine. Uh, you don't play it. Um, but if something is there and it was like designed and crafted, it's usually worth worth at least trying it. it might You might find some fun. And in my case actually found the most fun. Um, looking at these next couple here, so the last two sets we had recently, Dominar United and Brothers War. So we're back on Dominaria, folks. You might have heard. <laughs> if you didn't know that, then um, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so Dominar United, so amazing, amazing drafts, right? Like having to find your lane, pivoting into the right lane, um, there's just a bunch of doors and lanes you could go down. Um, you had to learn kind of how to be flexible in a draft, when to commit, and then how to be able to fine tune your archetype. Because if you built blue red spells 
around Tolarian Terrors to try to make your Tolarian Terrors cost less off your instants and sorceries. But then you just played like a normal-ish deck with, you know, 14 creatures and nine spells. You were not going to have success in that format, drafting it, just hoping that your deck was going to look good at the end of the day. Dominar United really taught around drafting around the archetypes, having those drafts like uh, coalesce, like having a strategy, figuring it out. And then once you get into that lane, like maximizing it. And if you want more on this, um, go ahead and you can check on out. There was a whole podcast on it, that retrospective. Um, so that was episode number four, the DMU retrospective. So I go pretty far in depth here, so I'm just barely touching on it. But I thought, you know, there were amazing drafts. That being said, the gameplay was kind of repetitive. Like there was... Um, the pillars of the format where you drafted like these white aggressive decks, you could draft, um, you know, black control decks, you could draft um, the blue red spells decks, you draft blue spell decks in general, um, you could draft, you know, walls decks. There were things you could draft, but there weren't that many things that you could draft. So um, that being said, like the drafts, like trying to figure out where to go in the drafts was cool. But then once you got to the games themselves, Oh, it's a red aggro deck. It's a um, a white aggro deck. It's a tokens deck. It's a control deck. There was maybe only like five or six decks, I think. And so, and, and the way those decks played out, more importantly, was almost always the same. So it's fine when you have sort of the same decks over and over. And I think it goes back to like when we talked about Neon Dynasty. It's fine when you kind of have the same archetypes over and over. But it's nice to have variability within those archetypes and slightly different things, right? Where um, sometimes in the blue-black decks, like in Neon Dynasty, there were more or less ninja-heavy based on, like, the cards that were opened. But um, your your blue-red spells decks in Dominaria United were just always blue-red spells decks. Like, you always just wanted a ton of spells and very few creatures. Now, they were better when you got Tolarian Terrors, but... If you didn't get terrors, there was other ways to draft the deck to try to make it so that you still had a bunch of spells and not very many creatures. So that led, I think, to a little bit worse gameplay overall, um, where it kind of was just the same thing over and over. Without, I think, a lot of the nuance that comes with really complicated uh, points of interaction. I've been playing a little bit more constructed lately, which... Um, you know, limited is still my my love. It's always, you know, that's what we talk about here at 40 Card College. But my short foray, I've been playing a lot of alchemy specifically. And I'll say that there, when you're playing Constructed, you're basically doing the same thing over and over again. But the cards, since they're at such high rarities, the cards interact in much more complex ways that you need to know your deck inside out and you need to know your opponent's deck and what they're trying to do. Whereas in Limited, the complexity comes in different spots. The complexity comes from trying to figure out maybe what your opponent's up to, trying to figure out what their game plan is, trying to figure out, am I the control or am I the aggressive player? And so when those questions are kind of answered for you, when you go to draft or you go into the games, the limited games themselves become much less interesting because that's what was interesting about them in the first place. If you look at constructed, the nuances of those gameplay, like that's where I think constructed players like, really fall in love with it like they find their deck 
And, and I've had a little bit of that one, like, oh, I really liked this particular deck that I, I've been playing. I played, um, I mentioned it on the last podcast with Alex, but um, Alex Hane. And I, the blue-black um, Oracle of the Alpha deck, where I put a bunch of power in my deck, and I draw a bunch of cards, and then I try to find those pieces of power, and I win that way. Hey, it's still fun in 2022. So yeah, I kind of fell in love with that strategy. Um, and in Limited... I'm changing my strategy every draft because I'm not drafting the same deck that I drafted last time. I'm opening up a whole new set of cards. So I want the games to feel different so that I can piece together that puzzle of like, how am I interacting with my opponent? How are they interacting with me? And what's my plan around that? And when I'm missing that, the gameplay falls flat. And it's actually a huge criticism of Dominar United for me. Um, That being said, really fun cards in the format. Um, and I really did like the navigating of the drafts themselves. Um, I think awesome spells to cast. Oftentimes we think about formats like from the creatures and the permanents and the standout cards. I talk about Streets of New Capenda and, and uh, Inspiring Overseer pops into your mind or, or Glamorous Outlaw pops into my mind or um, Civil Servant pops into your mind. When I talk about Dominion United, I think of like Tolarian Terror. Yeah, that's a cool creature, but I'm thinking about the spells mostly. I think it was a format dominated by instants and sorceries. We had Impulse come back. Normally, Impulse, not a great magic card. Um, spending a bunch of mana to look at some cards and picking one, not really a winning strategy in Modern Limited. But Impulse was awesome. I love drafting Impulse. Um, there was not that much pressure on tier- turn two in the format, so you could spend turn two casting Impulse, no problem. Fraction Espionage, um, just a better divination, but also gave you more utility in the late game. Um, drafted a ton of that card. Thought it was a bunch of fun. This resource attrition battle, great card. Fires of Victory, um, another just great removal spell. Um, a really fun one to play with Kicker. I talked about that card a lot also in episode four, so if you want to hear more about that, go check that out. Urborg Repossession, another one, right? You could have whole strategies built around this one spell at common where you're just trading resources. You get back your your two main permanents with Urborg Repossession and win from there. So um, th- that was all awesome. The only thing is just sort of that gameplay I talked about. And also, I talked about how I loved some of the build-arounds from Horizons Alchemy, Baldur's Gate, and Streets of New Capenna. Dumber United... The build-arounds weren't really there. Like, you knew the pillars. So, I mean, we talked about Wing Mantle Chaplain. Yeah, that card was a build-around for sure. But also, it was just like an archetype in a card. And there weren't really other cards that were build-arounds like that. Like, the archetypes themselves were based on those build-arounds. Like, it's just what you did with that archetype. So, to call it, like, I would want a different direction. Like... Tolarian Terror was sort of the core of blue-red, but what if there was a build-around that wasn't based on spells, right? That encouraged you to draft the blue-red deck with 20 creatures in a different way. We didn't see anything like that, and it's really cool when there are build-arounds that change it. And in fact, the build-arounds, they so weren't there that we saw a bunch of duds of rares in that format where you didn't want to take them. At least in Brothers War, there are some build-arounds, but more than that, like, there's a lot of rares I'm actually interested in taking. Okay. So I, I really like Dominar United. It sounds like I complained about it a lot here, but I think its strengths were so strong. I'm still putting it at number two. I think it's the second most fun I've had all year. Um, and if you're doing the, the counting here, so I have 
I said Alchemy Horizons, Baldur's Gate was number one. Dominar United, number two. And I said Neo was number three. Streets of New Capenna being number five, that puts Brothers War at number four. Um, I do enjoy Brothers War. It's, you know, the latest and supposedly the greatest um, of Limited right here. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's perfectly fine, but also entirely average. Um, I think that Brothers War, the aggressive take on it and figuring out how to draft the format actually was a lot of fun. I like trying to sort of, because again, I kind of struggled with the format at first because I didn't view it from like this colorless lens of flexibility, of having to interact early, having to get on board. But once you've sort of solved Brothers War from that angle and you know the, the certain ways to draft it, um, I do think it becomes a little bit less fun because uh, there's not, there are some other unique ways to draft, um, but there's not too many of them because the best things to be doing are often much better than whatever else you can be doing. Now, sometimes in Brothers War, the good like red, black sacrifice, the good aggressive um, decks aren't available. And you can do cool things like draft like mono blue with Mightstone's animation. I've really been enjoying Sam Black's episodes on certain archetypes. Um, he has a great show, Drafting Archetypes. I encourage you to check it out if you're not already listening there. Um, and he's got some interesting ideas, but also uh, it sort of sounds like he's, he. a lot of his archetypes are just, this is how you draft this archetype for this set. And it's not like the weird, wacky stuff. Mostly it's like, you know, when you draft white, blue soldiers, you want white and blue soldiers and you want to be aggressive. Like, um, that's kind of how I feel about the format also, where the the signposts of like the archetypes and how the cards come together are often kind of written on the cards themselves and you can kind of piece them together. Now, what's cool about Brothers War is that when you draft, you, you do start with those good cards. They're so much better than most of the synergy cards, but then pretty quickly those quote-unquote good cards do disappear like you're not going to just get a bunch of scrap work cohorts um and so around pick four or five you start to not see the high quality cards anymore and it does become pretty interesting to try to figure out what synergy pieces you're going to need for your build at that point and so you take maybe you take a flyer on trying to go a little bit more on the sacrifice avenue or a little bit more on a draw to avenue or maybe you're more about like the artifacts themselves rather than just like pure aggression. So there's a lot of subtlety, I think, in the draft portion of Brothers War in terms of which exact lane you're going down or the subset of cards. And all of that actually leads to pretty fun deck building. I think the biggest strength of Brothers War is the deck building itself. Because the drafts, yeah, they are pretty straightforward themselves. Sometimes you do have to decide between a card or two. Um, but when you get to the, the deck building portion, oftentimes you have like 30, 35 playables. And so you have to cut like between seven to 12 cards pretty frequently. And so if you look at your core cards and then you're trying to figure out like, well, I'm not sure exactly which way I want to go here, but you can actually maybe build like one or two different decks entirely uh, with the same core pieces. And then you have to like figure out well, which pieces, which synergy pieces really augment what I'm actually going for here. And I think that's a lot of where the fun is in Brothers War. So even though overall I find it kind of average, I think um, that back end of the drafting process and the deck building itself is really, really cool and like tinkering around with that. Um, I wish it was even more so. 
I think one of the biggest flaws of the format is that the good things to do, um, being on board that early, and also like colorless cards are a little too good that the draft puzzle itself becomes a little le less interesting. Like every time I want to take a cool card, there's a scrapwork mutt. There's a scrapwork cohort in the pack. And those are just the best cards and they're colorless. Now, admittedly, they're better when you have a colored source to be able to unearth them. But it becomes a little bit less fun when you're drafting. We're like, oh, that's that cool piece. And you're about to take the card and you're like, oh, wait, there's a, there's a scrapwork cohort. I didn't even see it at first. Yeah, I got to just take that. It's just the best card. That that becomes a little bit deflating when the good things are that good and, and colorless. And it's a problem that you have to really, really have to watch out for in like artifact-laden sets. Because things being that good and being colorless means that draft variability goes down even more so. Because part of the thing is with just a regular two-color format, once you get in your, your lane, you might be drafting like blue green i wouldn't recommend it in 2022 simic's usually bad but <laughs> let's say you're drafting um blue green in kamigawa with all the sky turtles okay well you open up um like a a double pipped uh red rare that you can't splash you end up passing that and then your opponent gets to take it and life goes on from there um if you're drafting you know red black and brother's war and you open up a steel serif which is technically like a white rare but it's actually just an artifact you just take that card right so the more insane colorless cards you get it just leads to forced picks and i think that's about the worst that limited gets is when there's a correct pick i think when when there's a lot of paths to go down and figuring out how to maximize those paths that's when limited gets the most interesting that's why dominary united is still my number two where you open up a, a, a pack and you can take the Tolarian terror to go down like the blue red road or you could take an ellis ilcor which leads to this like white black tokeny thing which leads down a different path and there's a bunch of cards around that where it's like they're all like pretty powerful but it's almost like cube where you're like you know there's a lot of choices here and maybe none of them are wrong to start. Um, maybe some are more right than others. But let's say they were like perfectly even. Well, you don't know which way to go. Then you have to kind of pick a direction and hope it works out. And then figure out how to maximize on that. And I just don't get that from Brothers War. So um, obviously we're still going to have a Brothers War retrospective. I can go deeper into those thoughts here. But for today, I just kind of want to do that 2022 retrospective. That's kind of how I feel wrapping it up. Um, for the sets this year overall i think again a pretty good year uh in limited magic uh, the worst set streets of new competitive was still pretty much just average i would still probably play it again um if, if i was told hey you could draft streets of Capenna or you could not draft today yeah give me some streets of new Capenna. i'll draft it that sounds fine um okay so before we wrapped up we're gonna do a quick little rundown here um so i picked out my faves and so that would be i picked out my favorite for each um permanent or not each type so land creature planeswalker etc etc so these were the cards that were printed this year and i i picked them um really with no criteria at all but i thought it'd be a fun kind of quick hits to end the episode um so i'm just going to kind of like tell you what it is and maybe one or two sentences about it okay so my favorite land of the year evolving wilds uh pretty simple land it's been printed a million times 
I love, love, love the Blast Runner combo um, that comes with it and the splash ability in Brothers War with Evolving Wilds. My favorite creature this year, Oracle of the Alpha, the two blue uh, alchemy creature that puts the power nine in your deck. Been awesome in limited with the alchemy, uh, been awesome in cube, been awesome in the alchemy constructed that I've been playing. So I just love this card. I think it's so cool to play with the power nine uh, in the context of a different magic card. So that's really cool. My favorite planeswalker, Minx and Boo, Timeless Heroes. I the card's incredibly powerful. It's the uh, the four or five mana planeswalker, depending if it's alchemy or not, like, you know, whatever. But it makes a hamster every turn. It pumps hamsters. It flings hamsters. It draws cards. It does it all. Minx and Boo, Timeless Heroes, super cool planeswalkers. My favorite of 2022. My favorite instant of 2022. Shout out to Streets of New Capenna. You got something right. Exotic Pets, the one white and blue uh, puts two 1-1 one, one fish into play, and they can each pick up a counter of the types you already have in play. Um, I think it's just, like, such a cool card. Um, <laughs> just killing people with the goldfish um, and kind of ties into the theme of the sleep with the fishes and all these other ridiculous mobster uh, themes of Streets of New Capenna. My favorite sorcery of the year, I picked Ferection Espionage, a, a card I mentioned before. I just love casting this card. Divination is fun. Divination with Upside is fun. Trying to figure out when you're supposed to play it on turn three versus kicking it later in the game. A fun little mini puzzle. And uh, I just love drawing cards and how that worked in Dominary United. My favorite artifact of the year, Portal 2 Phyrexia. A nine mana, insanely mythic mythic. It definitely bears the mythic title, but comes in. You feel like you are being portaled to Phyrexia. That the stuff's coming through the portal. And uh, it's not looking good for the good guys when those Phyrexians come through. Um, sacrificing all those creatures, bringing things back. Portal Phyrexia, fun, fun magic card. Um, my favorite enchantment to round things out, shout out to Neon Dynasty. Behold the Unspeakable. Um, the Unspeakable being a reference back to original Kamigawa. Pretty fun. Um, I just liked all the parts of the saga, shrinking your opponent's team, um, scrying, drawing, and then turning into a giant monster, and sometimes being able to bounce the enchantment after or bounce the creature and doing it all over again was a lot of fun in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. So that's it for 2022. I do want to say shout out to uh, the guests this year on the podcast. Uh, you know, I think the community really enjoyed um, having you know guests join us for those episodes. So something I'm looking to do next year as well. But thank you, Danelle, Beers SC, and of course, Alex Hain. Thank you all for coming on the show uh, and talking with me. Um, and everyone else, just thanks for making it this far and joining me. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, thanks again to my Adaptier and Above patrons, uh, Marius and Adrian. And everyone, 2023, it's here. I'll see you next time on the 40 Card College Podcast in 2023.